Our scripture reading for today is from 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11 to verse 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him everything we ask because we keep his commands and we do what pleases him. And this is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And to love one another, as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. So I just want to give you some real quick context for the benefit of those of you who are just joining us. We've been going through this letter where the apostle has an intense interest in discipleship. He has an intense interest that all of us who have been saved by the wonder and the scandal of God's undeserved grace would bear the family resemblance. He's old, he's probably mid-80s, and he's tenderly reaching out to the church and to us by extension Wanting the church to know how to live in a world that has no regard or interest for God. How do we be the people of God? How do we live our lives according to the law and the wisdom of God? And he wants, he's written this letter because he wants the church to be people of joy in a world that inevitably goes sideways and something drains our joy. So he's got this extreme interest in this imitation. And Christian faith, unlike other world religions, does not operate on an if-then system. If you do this, then God accepts you. If you do that, then God loves you. Christian faith, repeatedly through the New Testament, is revealed to be not if-then, but because-therefore. Because of Christ's perfection, therefore, we live to his glory. Because of Christ's amazing sacrifice and he laid his life down, therefore, we desire to emulate the one who saved us in grace. And so we are not saved by our constant uh, imperfect attempts at discipleship and love. We're saved by Christ's perfection. And that's the animating force that makes us desire to live these lives of love. In the same way that a small child runs and draws a picture and gives it to their mom or their dad or their aunt or their uncle, their big sister, or their big brother or family friend comes and says, I drew this for you. And you put that picture on the fridge. The child has done the art. The child has gone through the pains of doing good work from sheer joy. The child is not 
giving their parent the artwork and saying, I hope that earned me dinner. I hope that earned your love. I hope I can stay in the house a little longer. We as Christians, we live these lives of discipleship. We want to strain every nerve to desire to live to the glory of Christ precisely because God loves us and we're just putting our art on heaven's fridge. Uh, Earlier this year, I watched this video. It was a workout video for men over 40. I'm almost 50, so I probably should have watched a different video. But I decided, because I'm 47, I was like, I'm over 40. We're going to watch this one. So I watched this workout video. The guy was really informed and could tell from his physical condition. He knew what he was talking about. And it was a really excellent video. And so after I watched the video, an interesting thing happened. Nothing. (laughs) Because I didn't go to the gym. So discipleship is not the ingesting in a cerebral way of the wisdom of the law of God. You can't come in here and just say, hey, I'm going to come to Redeemer. I'm going to get the sermon. I'm going to leave. And that's my sort of my the outworkings of my Christian faith. You can't watch online and say, well, there, I tuned in. I received the gospel. Praise be to God and call it a day. Because to borrow a, uh, to borrow a metaphor from uh, a gentleman I just recently heard this week at a, at a lecture uh, at Heritage. His name is Dr. Kevin Van Hoosen. To borrow a metaphor from him, the church is like a gymnasium where the soul of the disciple is being worked out. Where there is strength to be made in the church, strength for stability and mobility. Stability when the world goes sideways and mobility to be ministers to the people sitting around you to care and love and in our city. So, when this text is calling us to this discipleship and there's this intense, you know, interest in it, it's so that we, unlike myself who watched the training video and said that's incredible and uh, didn't do anything about that. Uh, we've got to put this thing, we've got to work this out. And so we're not, it's not Christian TripAdvisor. <laughs> we're just kind of connoisseurs on how we like everything and rating sermons and rating music and rating the experience and rating the liturgy and then moving on with our lives. There's like an intense connection. So I want to break this text out um, this morning by looking at three things. The first being the message. The message of love. The second thing being... The evidence. The evidence of the new birth. And then lastly, the dynamic command. So first let's look at this message in verse 11. He says it's old. It's from the beginning. It's not, it isn't new. It's not novel. It's fundamental. And if we as believers, the longer we're in church, fall into the trap of seeking the novel, uh, that's intensely unimportant. What the, what the apostles can consistently interested in is not something that's novel, but really living out the reality of what is to be fundamental, this love. The nature of God being love, the message from the beginning is love, because of course God is love. And so when we back it, back it up and look at the text, um, you know, just back up and look at the entire Bible, what we find is that God reveals himself as a God of love. You know that, you've been in church for a while. But why would God do that? Well, who is the first audience to the book of Genesis? Answer, Hebrew slaves who had been in Egypt, baptized thoroughly in Egyptian mythology of what the gods were like for 400 years. So the the very first people hearing 
God disclosed his own nature through the, in the book of Genesis. The very first people were people who their concept of the gods were that they were transcendent but not eminent. They wanted subjects and servants, but certainly not children. So everything about our Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who before all time was complete within himself and a God of love, and from that love spun forth the creation of the cosmos, God being a God of love is the message from the beginning. It's the nature of our God, therefore it's the nature of us. And God was distinguishing himself from all these other gods in the uh, ancient world at the time, which were absolutely not personal and not loving and had no, no need of any intimacy. And so God is, in the Old Testament, revealing that he is unlike every other God. Now this text moves on from this message from the beginning of love to this interesting and provocative analogy of Cain murdering his brother. We're like, whoa, wow. How do we get there? This instant connection of murder and hatred. Interestingly, what he does with it, if you look at the text, is he's basically saying, don't be surprised if the world hates you, but we should all be surprised if we hate each other. He's like, we're supposed to love each other in, in the community. And of course, in the church community, that's like, that's like active. You know, It's like getting it on the ground and working it out in tangible, practical ways with the people who are sitting around us this morning right here in this small little community. So that through all that sharpening, we take it out to the, to the greater community. He says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. But why would he even make that comment? I mean, the world doesn't hate people who are kind and loving. The world doesn't hate Christians because they're kind and loving. The world didn't hate Jesus because he was kind and loving. Christ was crucified because he claimed to be God. And throughout all of history... People who aren't of the Christian faith, when they hate those who are of the Christian faith, the hatred is spawned from this idea that I don't want anybody to suggest or tell me that I am not okay. That my feelings and appetites and desires and ideologies are not okay. And the cross, before it comforts me, it confronts me because the cross is saying humanity is not okay. The cross is, before we get to the scandalous grace of our Savior who forgives us of all things, the cross is saying, actually the problem of humanity is so bad, God Almighty had to come and die. So, we don't like that. We hate that. And so you see, it's not our love and kindness and desire to do good works in the city that's going to cause the city to hate it. It's that at the core of our message, the core of our message is, there is a God, but we're not Him. And in a striking contrast to the dialogue of Socrates, we're not going to save ourselves through our politics. We're not going to save ourselves through our virtue. We're not going to save ourselves through the outworkings of friendship. The problem is this sin. And for those of you who are new to the scriptures or exploring Christian faith this morning, maybe you're here today and you're uh, not a person of faith, and you're like, yeah, what is up with this Christians in this conversation around sin? You need to understand that the way that the Bible presents sin is it's not an action, it's a condition. It's not like a terrible, gross action that some people do, and we've got to avoid doing those things. Of course, sin can look like that. But it's much more pervasive than just an action. It's a condition. And so, you see, sin can look like what's going on in Russia when you just go in and bomb civilians. I mean, there's certain sin that's obvious, but there's a lot of sin that is non-obvious. It's insidious. For example, you can live a kind and loving life and serve your neighbor and want to be a good person in the community and live your whole life 
but not worship Jesus Christ, believe that he is God, bend your knee to his lordship, and that's called sin. That's a life of sin. And God judges that. You say, well, how could that possibly be? Here's, here's why. You know what plagiarism is? Susan mentioned it last week. Plagiarism is to just stand on... It's a crime, plagiarism. Like, do, we've got a lot of university students here. Plagiarize a paper. Let me know what happens. Like, it's not like, oh, it's just plagiarism. Like, big deal. Plagiarism is standing on the work and the strength and the sweat equity of another and presenting it like it's all you. Imagine if this sermon I was preaching today, I heard online and I just transcribed it and preached it today and passed it off like I wrote this. Right? Sin is cosmic plagiarism. It is living your life. You can be a kind and loving person in the community and do all sorts of great things and live and die. And God says, I'm not accepting that. That's cosmic plagiarism. You are living your life like I, the God, the God who created all things, does not exist. You are going about your life and doing good things as though you are somehow the, the, the one who is the omnipotent decider of what is good and true. And you have oriented your life around your career or your children or your family or all sorts of good things. But in your cosmic plagiarism, you elevated the good thing to the ultimate thing, decided that's what life is all about. Plagiarism. Sin. I got the phrase cosmic plagiarism from Dr. Timothy Keller. Can you imagine if I just did that whole thing on cosmic plagiarism? And a great stroke of irony, committed plagiarism. Okay. So this is why such stark language is being given. This is, this is what uh, the world hates. Like, if you're honest, if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, like you would say... Like even in this moment, like this is an uncomfortable dialogue because it's such strong language. And we, as, as, as a sort of, we pride ourselves as moderns that we've sort of evolved to the point where as long as we're sort of intellectual and thoughtful about something, then we can sort of basically embrace any ideology and God should be okay with that. The, the, the modern view of spirituality is that, again, to borrow from Dr. Van Hoosen, he would say it this way. It's like modern spirituality is all good with the message of love. But they want a love without holiness. They want a love without divinity. They want a love without the a cosmic God of perfect justice. Who can cosmically say for all people, through all cultures, through all time, what is true and good and right. You see, we don't want any of that. We just like the idea of sort of a vague love. So this message from the beginning is that we would be people of love, not because we sort of arbitrarily decided to be kind, but because we want to emulate the one who has saved us in grace, and we have bent our knee to our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And so this message from the beginning is this love. When I was at that conference that I mentioned this week um, with Dr. Van Hoosen, somebody, one of the pastors hit another guy's car in the parking lot. And we came in from the lunch break, and the, one of the profs got up and he said, does anybody drive a red Toyota, da-da-da-da, license plate? Somebody raised their hand. And they're like, okay. And then this, he goes, this gentleman over here. And then this other guy sheepishly stands up and he's like, hey. Like, I hit your car. So here's how sin and forgiveness works. The guy who, whose car got hit, he's the owner. So he gets to decide whether the other, guy, the other guy's got to pay for it or whether he's going to forgive him. And forgiveness looks like absorbing the cost himself. The car doesn't magically get fixed. So the modern construct of God who's like, wink, wink, I love everybody. What a tragic miscarry of injustice. So this, this modern God is supposed to look at what's happening in Russia and be like, in the end, everybody's fine. Please don't worship that God. What a tragedy. No, our God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. 
Imagine if the prophet had just said, Bless you, my child, your sins are forgiven. The guy who owned the car would be like, What? You, you don't get to forgive that. That wasn't committed against you. So you see, the cosmic love of God, the, love of, the message of love from the beginning is that in Genesis 3, when the world went sideways because our first parents committed cosmic treason, the eating of the fruit, the original sin, the sin under all sin, is I don't need to be fulfilled by God, I will fulfill myself. I don't need truth to be defined by God, I will define truth on, by myself. That was the temptation. This is attractive to be God. So the good news of the gospel is that everything that God has required, he has provided. God came himself in Jesus Christ, not to bring justice, but to bear justice. Not to bring judgment, to bear it, to bear our judgment. This is the cross, the intersection of perfect mercy and justice. And so therefore, we should be intensely interested in being disciples, reflecting Christ, because it's This real discipleship is because we're full of his spirit. So all of our love and good works, all of the time you carve out of your life to care about the people next to you, the sacrifices you make so that on the ground you care about the people around you in in a real way is from pure pleasure. Not some weird form of religious cosmic payment. Let's move on to the next thing. So after this message of love, he goes on to say that love is really the evidence of the new birth. So again, it's strong language because he's not saying, he's saying that, you know, as the children of God, we ought to bear the family resemblance. And the categories are not, well, mature Christians are disciples and immature Christians, you know, they're not disciples. Those are not the categories of maturity and immaturity. Fact check this sermon, reread the whole letter. The categories are, you're, you're in or you're out. You, you, like, if you love Jesus then you will fail and fail and fail and you'll, and you'll miserably, you know, you'll get up and you'll ask for God's forgiveness. But at the end of the day, because you love him and because you're his child, you are forgiven and you desire to resemble him. You're in or you're out. You're sort of all churches since John. People who are sort of there and maybe busy with activity, but they, there's nothing in their hearts that's like, I care about these people around me. It matters that I build a community. It matters that I care. It matters that I live as a disciple. It matters that I emulate Jesus. They're just kind of like, I don't really care about any of that. So the categories are not, hey, Christian, you need to mature and grow up and be a disciple. The categories are like, we're in or we're not. We, we love him or we don't. So there's all sorts of grace for our failure. That's chapter one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's chapter one. Christians all miserably fail. There's forgiveness there. But do we ever increasingly desire to resemble the one who saved us in grace? And so if you're hearing this this morning and you're feeling a sense of conviction, like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I, 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 God forgive me for not caring. God forgive me for not loving. God forgive me for being apathetic. There's forgiveness there. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're, and you're feeling as though like, you know what, actually, <laughs> I feel nothing. My encouragement to you is not to ramp up your spiritual activity because that's not, not actually your problem. If you don't care about any of the things I'm saying, my, my invitation to you is to turn and look at the glorious grace and justice and mercy and tenderness of Jesus. 
because you've not yet been captivated by the wonder of Jesus and your heart has not been arrested by his grace. And when it is, these things will naturally flow from that. So, the reason I'm saying this with such sort of confidence this morning is because the, the, the word for love throughout this passage in the Greek is agape. If you've been in church for a while, you've heard that word. If you're new for, to the scriptures, maybe that's a new word. But in the English language, you have one word, love, which is not as helpful as having specific language. And in the Greek, agape means a handful of things. So it's saying that it is outward facing and it is self-emptying and it is postured toward another. I mean, you can't, you can't agape people if you are relationally distanced from them. You know, we, we can't walk out discipleship listening to sermons. You're just coming here and you're listening to me and you're hoping that I, you know, somewhat interesting and keep you awake for a little while and you kind of leave. You can't, that, you can't agape anything unless you're carving time out of your life and getting your hands dirty in the love and the care in small but you know, beautiful ways with those who are around us. And so the significance of agape is we have a God who gets his hands dirty. Again, let's go back to the book of Genesis. God forms Adam from the dirt of the ground. We've heard that a hundred times and we're like, yep, got it. But I want you to imagine you're the first audience. You're an Egyptian and you and your family have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And the only gods that you're aware of don't get their hands dirty. Who is this God willing to get his hands dirty? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. Born of Mary into the saliva and mess of a feeding trough. Confines himself into the dirt of his own creation. And then Jesus goes around touching lepers and he's like hugging people and he's caring for people. And he's just getting his hands dirty. And then we're called to live these lives as disciples. And so the, the apostles like really intensely interested in the church being disciples. So that means there's only one way for that look. We've got to get our hands dirty. Just small, beautiful, ongoing ways of care and love. And then it matters that it's worked out, that there's not that hatred, you know, indifference. We hear somebody suffering, going through something, and we're like, hmm, we don't... No, it's like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Do you want to have a coffee? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you, want to... you don't need to have a degree in counseling or theology. You just you need to have ears and like sit down and care. So our God gets his hands dirty. And so, therefore, that's why the text goes on to say Jesus laid his life down and we ought to lay ours down. You know, when we think of that in verse 16 of laying down our life, we often think of, you know, dramatic, heroic gestures. But, you know, for most of us and for most Christians throughout all of church history, the laying down of the life, for some it's been dramatic, for some it's been literal. But for most Christians, it's been laying our lives down piece by piece. Small but important ways. Different disposition on how you come to church. Different disposition in how to, um, you know, relate to this church community. It, it has to get specific. It can't just be general. I'm a, I'm a member of Redeemer. This big nebulous thing called Redeemer. No, 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 no. It's got to be like, I, I care about this guy named John. I care about this woman named Laura. I care about them. I'm going to borrow from C.S. Lewis here. He says this. It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, 
depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And this, I think, is what 1 John is getting at, is that we ought to love each other in in particular. You can't be close and intimate friends with 150 people. That's absurd. But you can love and care about four or five people in this church and develop some wonderful relationships with them. And and this is important and, and key. And so this is why in verse 18, we see that the love is not just sentiment. We walk it out. Of course, we fail at this. And there's great comfort in our failure. Look at the comfort when we fail. You see it in verses 19 through 21. He says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. When we fail at this, which we all inevitably do, we remember, you know what? I am a child of God, not on the basis of how well I walk this out. I'm a child of God on the basis of his wonderful and amazing grace. Are we all going to sin and fail? Yes. But are we going to practice righteousness? Yes. Because we're full of his spirit. To borrow from Charles Spurgeon, he says this, Sometimes our heart condemns us, but in doing so, it gives us the wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take our case to the higher court. God is greater than our hearts. Last thing this morning, as I make a couple closing statements, as we move on from from, uh, the message of love and the evidence of the new birth, to the dynamic command to believe in the name of the Son and to love one another as he commanded us. And then you see in verse 24, there's this abiding We in him and he in us. The New Testament never commands you to do anything without first reminding you who you are and whose you are. Not just commanding you to do things that you and I are not actually empowered by the Spirit to be able to do. Yes, we fail at it, but we are empowered to do it. And so we see that this life of love, it flows from all the faith that God gives and the strength that God gives as we abide. This last week, my brother was looking for a new car and I went to help him. And it was a lot of fun because I always have various automotive theses going on. I've got all these virtual garages. I'm constantly reading up on cars. I'm just constantly all up in it. So when he was like, hey, do you want to help me go look for a car? I was like, oh, yeah, let's go do this. And I said, what are your requirements? What do you want? One of the things that he wanted was he's like, well, it'd be great if I had Apple, Apple Android you know, CarPlay. Now, that's not a standard feature. A lot, of, a lot of cars, most cars, that's not a standard feature. You've got to go, okay, well, there's, here's your standard feature. And then when you go up a level of trim, now you get it. You know, discipleship for Christians is not like Apple CarPlay. It's not like, well, I'll believe in Christ and I'll come to church or I'll watch online and I'm just going to kind of ingest this cerebral gospel, this teaching of God's word. But this discipleship stuff, this getting messy stuff, this getting my hands dirty and having lunch with people and getting to know people and like building relationships and serving in ministry together. Uh, that's like another level of Christianity that I'm not ready. No, it's not, it's not. It's standard equipment. That's what the apostle's getting at. That's why his language is always so provocative. He's like, this is, the, this is not a special calling. This is just what it means to be a child of God, and to love him and to desire. Now, of course, we're all at various stages of, of learning to do this and growing in this, but this is our call, and we're empowered, of course, to do it, to give our lives and to care. Yes, it's going to be small. Yes, it's often small, but small is powerful. Believe it. Now, last thing I'll say here this morning, again, borrowing from Van Hoosen, who said a couple of providential things in the lecture that I thought, wow, that's so applicable for Sunday in terms of discipleship. He gave another interesting metaphor for discipleship. He said, discipleship is like method acting. Not acting like we're being fake, we're hypocrites, we don't love or care about what we're doing, we're just putting on a show. 
method acting. Method actors go to extreme lengths because they are so enthralled and absorbed in the role that they feel called to play. Daniel Day-Lewis, when he was playing a paraplegic, did not get out of a wheelchair the entire time they were filming. He had people in, on, on set spoon-feeding him because he refused to feed himself because he wanted to get it in the headspace of someone who couldn't care for themselves. Right? You see, other actors, they lose tons of weight. They gain tons of weight. They learn languages. Jim, from The Office, got trained by Navy SEALs and transformed his entire body to play Jack Ryan. Right? Tom Cruise is trying to kill himself on film. He wants his death recorded by all of the... He's like, yo, he's like, duct tape me to the outside of this plane. If people are going to believe it, that's what we got to do. And so for Christians, discipleship, as we read the scriptures and we look at Jesus, it's not like, hmm, that's interesting. It's like, man, how do I embody this? Like, how do I live into this? How can my love and care be method? Not because, I'm try- not because I'm acting, trying to be somebody I'm not. But because the co- constant call in the scripture to be people of love, is that is not just a prescription. It's a description of who I actually am. Who united to Christ you are. Who full of his spirit you are. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another as God has commanded us. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. Let's pray.